Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and this week I'm coming to you from New York City, Brooklyn, New York, my other home. And I was able to leave Accra just basically because I had to come back for work. Otherwise, I would have stayed in my lovely feeling a little safer um, Africa. And just, just to give you all a little bit of context, the contrast between New York and Accra is that I think we really have taken seriously the the keeping hands sanitized and, you know, masks are a thing that's just going to be contentious. But for the most part, it's law there. So everybody's wearing a mask. And here I see it quite a bit, not all the time. But the biggest difference is that the hand washing, because we know that if you're going places and touching things, if your hands aren't clean, then there's a serious problem. And in Accra, most places that you go have what we call a Veronica bucket, where you go out, you have, you wash your hands before entering, or hand sanitizer that's outside. Larger establishments are doing temperature checks. So I think there is just a general feeling of more safety. And coming back to New York, there's also a sense of, I, I get it, because there was mass pandemic. I mean, it, it hit New York very, very, very hard. And then there was protest, and then there's just recession. So this is just a really interesting time to be in the city that I've grown up to an adult in and loved and feeling the energy is very different. And I do hope it comes back soon, bigger and brighter and greater and, and with more love. So I just say everyone needs to just be very patient with everyone that they love, they care about, but not complacent. You know, let's be diligent about being safe and taking care of our awareness around making sure to manage the pandemic. So with that said, I'm halfway this week in Africa still. My guest is coming to us from Nairobi, Kenya. He's an old friend and he is the co-director of Synergy Yoga in Nairobi, as well as the founder and director of Capoeira Kibera. He's a father of two, one of which his daughter is a model of mine for my dresses, Beckham B dresses. She's just a beautiful young girl and she's becoming a beautiful teenager, I think, now. Time just flies. She's on the verge, right? So Salim Rollins, welcome to Global Citizens. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be on this platform and good job. Good. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So let's get started. Salim, tell us about who you are, where you're from, where you're, where you're local, and what is your craft? Great. So I was born in White Plains, New York, suburbs of the city. Grew up in that area. Wonderful household, wonderful, loving, creative, artistic family. And spent a good amount of my life in the West Coast as well. So I consider the Bay Area and California my home. New York will always be home to me as well. I know you from the East Coast, New York area initially. And so, yeah, I moved to Nairobi, Kenya uh, six years ago. My kid's mom is, uh, is Nairobian. She's Kenyan. We had decided a while ago that we, uh, you know, we would want to raise them for most of their, their youth here in, in Kenya. So we've been here six years. My craft, I, as you mentioned, I run a yoga school, an international yoga school called Synergy Yoga. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that. And I'm also a Kapwet Angola instructor um, within that 
uh, within that art form, uh, I have the title Contra Mestre from um, Mestre Jean Grandi, who's a, an elder Mestre who's been in, in New York City actually since uh, 1990. He's 87 years old now. So he's been in the city wow. for years. Yeah. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. He's still there. Nice. So I teach capoeira, I teach yoga, and I do events as well. I do a lot of, uh, I've, I've dealt with music, I've done and been worked in video production, but that's a while ago. So really wellness events, some music events, and mostly wellness events around yoga and capoeira. Okay. So tell us about, you know, capoeira is, the, its roots are in Brazil. So how did you get introduced to capoeira and and translated that into something that is a professional endeavor of yours? Okay. Good question. Um, I would say the roots of capoeira are in Angola, and then it kind of blossomed in or took form or shape in Brazil. It's a subtle distinction, but it's important to us in traditional capoeira. Yes. I got introduced to capoeira at, in university, at the University of California, Santa Cruz. good friend of mine who you know, Joshua Bialafia, was the first actually to introduce me to capoeira. We were, it's basically kind of, I'd say, the, you know, an art and culture scene at the university, uh, particularly of people of color, that I connected with. We were doing theater together for the African-American theater troupe and Josh was directing. He cast me as a lead in this Alice Childress play and we would have rehearsals at his house every Friday night. The rehearsals would kind of turn into a house party, you know, and there'd be like, you know, people would be on drums and, you know, it'd be just a lot of different interesting things happening and a great group of people. And that's where also the, the capoeira practitioners, we call capoeiristas, would come. So I would see them getting down like in the kitchen and I was like, I want to do that. And so after that term was done, I was committed to the play that term. So starting in, in next term in January, I, I committed to starting Capoeira. And, you know, that was 1995. And it's been with me ever since 25 years now. Okay. Wow. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about the philosophy and what Capoeira actually is. Okay. To be clear, I practice what we consider the traditional form of the art called Capoeira Angola. We consider it traditional because I think Capoeira Angola holds a lot of the, the traditions and ties to kind of African ritual, African ceremony, um, a certain structure. You know, it, so it has, it kind of holds, it's known as the holder of kind of spiritual Capoeira in a sense. Capoeira is an Afro-Brazilian martial art developed by the enslaved Africans who were brought from Angola and Congo to Brazil. And we say the roots are really in Central Africa because, you know, these enslaved Africans used their martial forms, their music, other practices in the formation of capoeira. So it's a very interesting process of capoeira definitely emerged within the context of slavery, right, but was also based on a sensibility of uh, fighting, of elusiveness, of deception in some ways, which was very well established already in Angola. If you look back to the military leader, Queen Nzinga, and, and different military leaders even from Angola, they used a lot of the kind of sensibility of capoeira, elusiveness, what we consider guerrilla fighting, for example, is kind of an integral part about within the philosophy of capoeira. Um, so elusiveness, mm-hmm. not using force to, you know, kind of, being having a flow to the way in which you move and in integrating dance and, and music into the art. It's also a very African thing. African martial arts typically have music accompanying them. If you look at Senegalese wrestling, for example, there's like percussion, there's drum. So there's a rhythmic quality to the way that you fight, which comes up in capoeira as well. And then there's the song you practice, you know, to 
music to percussive instruments and also to call and response songs, which are for us hold the, the history of the art. It's kind of our, you know, because so many records were destroyed in Brazil, but in a lot of ways we've kept the history of the transatlantic slave trade, of capoeira, of old masters, a lot of different stories uh, in the same ways that uh, Agrio would. We have that in capoeira through the songs we sing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ultimately, like thinking back to warfare in the African context, it was a lot more cunning versus violence until it was violent, right? Like there, so I'm, I'm getting that there was a ritual with battle that was more symbolic. And there was like, we talk about the gentleman's war, whereas, you know, our, our Western influencers were obviously a little bit more about implements, whereas we were more about the, the psychological aspects of dominating our mm-hmm. enemies until we weren't. So in the first phase, it's this ritual that first establishes dominance. And then if that doesn't hold, then it, it progressed. Is that kind of the idea or understanding of, yeah, of the play? I think that's an interesting way to put it. And I would also say the element of, you know, particularly for Capoeira Angola, the ancestral connection is there in a lot of uh, martial arts, particularly in West Africa. You know, Mm -hmm. you kind of go to the shrine or you go kind of, you know, go to the source before you, even if it's kind of friendly, competitive. Like there's a great question about this on Senegalese wrestling specifically. And they have to go out to the bush and go to like the family shrines before they go into the big fight. So there's that kind of preparation. Certain things like this carry over in Capoeira as well. Now, how it's practiced today, things have changed so much over the centuries. But again, in the traditional form of Capoeira, having an understanding, some level of understanding of these components is really important because that's, in a lot of ways, the link. For example, the instrument we play as as an instrument that more than making music and more than creating an ambiance or feeling also is a way to to connect ancestrally. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. the foundation of how before you even move or before you compete, the music kind of coming first and channeling all of that energy is really fundamental and very African kind of way to go about right. holding ritual and even even having a martial arts practice. Right, right, right. More evidence that we were first. <laughs> you know, you look, you look at no, really. I mean, you think about like the Civil War. Think about the Civil War and what have you. And they had the trumpeters that you know would would usher them in and what have yeah. you. Right. We had our drummers. We had the beats going from the from the roots, right. so to speak. Right. So um, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. very lovely. So that's how you came to the capoeira side of things. Mm. Let's take a pivot a little bit. So I, I asked the question, why the where? And you, you've indicated a bit of why the where, but I want to get, particularly in the context of the world we're living in now, and you being a Black American living in Africa Tell me more about why the where. Tell me more of your your motivations, more of your insights, more of, of, of how Kenya and Nairobi became home for you. I fell in love with the Somali Kenyan woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. It's very simple. <laughs> I always had the vision and idea of living on the continent, so it worked out conveniently. Or so we can say that it's destiny or fate. Even my mom naming me Salim and I end up in a Somali community, you know, when I do, you know, get yes. married, it is also interesting. It kind of made certain things. Right, right. So tell, wait, tell us, Salim means? Peace is a simple kind of reduction. Mm-hmm. Peace, intactness, wholeness. There are a lot of different interpretations or way to use that name. So, but all of those, mm-hmm. wellness. So mm-hmm. it's very connected to kind of the work that I do as well. 
Sure, sure, sure. I, I uh, fell in love with a married a Somali Kenyan woman. We had two children. We met in Brooklyn and spent a bit of time in Nairobi in uh, 2008. We thought we were going to stay at that time. Um, we conceived our first child, our daughter, Aza. And we decided not to stay for multiple reasons. Fatima had to, she didn't have U.S. citizenship. And then there were some things about having our children born outside of the U.S. in terms of immigration and how that worked. And you see how, how all of this stuff gets twisted in terms of politics, like who has a right to, to do certain things politically or how Trump at one point was really challenging Obama who wasn't born. Because technically you're not supposed to run for certain positions in higher office if you're born outside of the U.S. and it's not on like a military base. So there were certain things that informed our decision to move back to the U.S. So we moved to, to Oakland at that point. Yeah, and we, uh, you know, we spent five years there. It was great. And then there came a point where actually Fatima said, okay, I'm ready to go home. And it was kind of like that. It was kind of abrupt. <laughs> I was like, wait, okay. I've got something <laughs> now in Oakland. I have a Capoeira group and an amazing job. And so I had to like work through the little mind talk that was like, it's not time yet. And realize, no, it actually is a great time to transition back to the continent. And there's so much family support for our kids and, and for us in Kenya. I mean, to me, some of the big advantages as a father, I would say, is actually being, one, being in an African country, in, in an African country where my kids' teachers are Black, where there's not, where they don't need to experience life going through this racialized lens and experience that really, you know, creates all of these, you know, kind of what I think these, these fabricated differences, you know, between people. They're, they exist here, certainly, but there's a lot of reinforcement of who they are as people and as Black people. You know, it's not like an exception to the rule that you have a Black president, that's how it's going to be, or that your teacher or whomever. So I felt like on a psychological level, they're not that my kids would have so many advantages growing up here in terms of seeing themselves as the rule, you know, seeing them, themselves as the standard, as instead of kind of having to do all the work that, that a lot of us have had to do to kind of unlearn, you know, some of the conditioning, a lot of the, the hundreds of years of conditioning as people of color and as, as black people in the U.S., so, so to me, giving them the, them the opportunity to kind of sh have a have a just a different worldview, you know, and to really kind of be seated in a place where they saw themselves reflected, like everywhere, was a huge advantage. And that's true for me too. Just my experience, you know, not having to constantly fight this thing or have this this weight that that's there in the U.S. around right. being in, a, in such a racialized. You know, and we see how tensions have been erupting recently, and they always have been. So, yeah, so I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So do you actually recognize that difference in your children? Like that they, do they see themselves as African children? Do they see themselves as, as American children there? Just how has that transition been for your children? Definitely both, which is actually, to me, the ideal scenario. It's not to mm -hmm. negate that they're also American as well. Yes, Right. So they have fact they have two passports, which, again, is a huge advantage. It's very easy, surprisingly easy to get for them to get a Kenyan passport here, actually. So that process was in spite of the other numerous challenges I've personally had with immigration in Kenya. That piece was very easy, fortunately. Mm -hmm. That's great because mm -hmm. that to me, again, sets them up. I mean, I love that they 
have the opportunity if they want to do business, if they want to work, if they want to own property, if they want to live in Kenya, that that's just given. That's a given. Mm -hmm. They don't need to do anything. If Likewise in the U.S., you know, and I think they'll probably do both in their life. So I think they identify as American and Kenyan. Uh, we go back to, to the U.S. in, in non-COVID time. In the last few years, we've gone back every summer. So July, August, we're typically in the U.S. to see my parents, their grandparents, and I have work that I do in the summertime. Um, mm -hmm. so made a point to keep that connection as well, um, not just with the U.S., but with, with the family um, on a nice. regular basis. My mom came here February, spent a month, which was amazing. So, um, so they, when they go back, they really kind of, you know, we keep them engaged in really amazing programs in the summer, Destiny Art Center in Oakland, where I used to work. They do dance theater and martial arts with an integrated violence prevention program. This is a youth arts organization. So they do that in the summers, typically. They love it. Mm -hmm. And they, so they get, you know, they still get kind of the culture, you know, the music, right. you know, the way people speak, the conversations that are happening. They're different, especially in the Bay. A lot of different so to me, it's great that they kind of get exposed to some of that, but they're not inundated with the information all the time. I think sometimes my opinion is that youth in the U.S., depending where you live and what community you're in, sometimes there's so much information. And sometimes we expect them to really like to have to articulate, you know, if it's gender pronouns, if it's this, that and the other, and having to really suss out things that, in my opinion, it's like, you know, does nine-year-old really need to have that much information or really try and sort out certain things around if it's sexual identity or if it's, or just the media that comes in is so heavy and so mm -hmm. and is so clever at kind of catching youth's attention and shifting how they think. So this kind of, you know, want, want culture in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is a product of capitalism in a lot of ways, the, the kind of capitalism that's practiced in the U.S. And so, so that, I noticed that when I go back and because I, I teach kids a lot. And so I just, I noticed that and I feel like here in Nairobi, it's just much more, there's a bit more space for them to kind of sure. grow into being adults, to not being inundated with targeted marketing. I mean, yeah. it's there, it's here, but it's much less than in the U.S. Right, right, right. No, I, I definitely recognize that. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very different, different experience. So last question about your children. Do they speak any local language? Not really well. I think, okay. I think we fell short in that area. I think that probably, like, once you get into parenting, it's just like, it's like kind of go, go, go. And I think that, you know, their mom speaks, I speak Swahili. Portuguese. Their mom does speak Swahili and Somali. She's Kenyan Somali, some Italian and English. I mean, it's mm -hmm. pretty typical in Kenya. I'd say most Kenyans are trilingual. They'll speak their own ethnic languages. There are 42 ethnic groups in Kenya. They'll speak mm -hmm. Swahili, which is kind of, you know, spoken by all the ethnic groups, and English. Um, so okay. most Kenyans, like, you know, have, you know, are trilingual to some extent. Depending on the education, yeah. it might be less English, you know, or, sure. or less of their ethnic language. But a lot, a lot are. That's pretty common. So in school, they have Kiswahili and they have French. They go to a Waldorf okay. school in Nairobi. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So they have kind of phrases, you know, and they can communicate some things, but they are not like flowing in Kiswahili. It's something we need to work on. 
Yet. Yeah. They're not flowing yet. <laughs> yes. Correct. Right. 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 So this is great segue into my local speak question. So in my local speak question, I ask, we want to hear what you hear. So I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. <laughs> That's right. You did mention this one. So now I got to think of, well, okay, good. I'd say a, a one of the most common expressions here is sawa, sawa, sawa. Um, okay. Which basically means it's it's cool. You know, mm-hmm. everything's cool. Everything's all right. I think it's important here because it. I find, and I've spent time in in West Africa. One of the things I appreciate about East Africa and Kenya is there's a certain softness to the way people move. Mm-hmm. I, the analogy I make is that I feel like West Africa is kind of has a more masculine energy. And I think East Africa has a more feminine or West Africa is more fire. When you think of the music, for example, the percussion, just like, you know, it's, it's driving all the time. The climate's even, you know, um, and the people, it's a bit faster. You know, people are kind of, East Africa is like very poly poly, like, like slow, slow, you know. So the kind Interesting. of- Interesting, okay. The Sawa Sawa kind of like mentality or feeling is like, you know, no, it's, you know, and, and you find this in, granted, most African countries, but it's kind of even more so when you come to Kenya. Like, you'll feel like people are really slow, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> mentally slow, but like they're moving slow through the world, which sure. by reference is probably true. And, you know, it's sort of some, one of the things, and again, I know you've been through this, part of the kind of mental um, and emotional adjustment and transition of like kind of starting to um, get in the flow of the culture here is learning how to slow down, you know, yes. just learning yes. how to, and I know, you know, again, Ghana definitely as well, anywhere on the continent for the most part, which is, is great, you know, because we, I feel like we really get into this, you know, this hurried kind of mindset, which brings on so much stress and is like, you know, it's kind of we're oriented around productivity in the West and in the U.S. so much. Mm-hmm. Thing, you know, or completing or on to the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. not just kind of being, you know, I think that people are comfortable. We're more comfortable just being here. You don't, you're not expected to always be mm-hmm. doing, 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 going, going. So Pauli Pauli is another one that I like. Slow, slow, take your time. There's no rush. Okay, so so sawa, 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 and poly poly. Like you know, when you say something twice, oftentimes it's, it's yes, tempest, yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. So we have some local speak from Kenya. Yeah. All right, so let's now dive into you as yogi. Okay. Because I feel like that's that's something that has basically evolved as you've lived in Kenya. It has evolved, definitely. Mm-hmm. I started yoga practice 20 years ago. Kapoeira kind of brought me to yoga. It was a way to manage injuries that I had from training Kapoeira and mm-hmm. became definitely a, a lifestyle. I started, as soon as I started going to yoga class, I started doing home practice, which for me was important. It was like, okay, yes. I don't need to go to yes. a studio, you know, like I, and so. I feel the same. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. Exactly, yeah. Which is, is kind of the purpose is to have this medicine that you can take wherever you go. You know, you're not mm-hmm. in the studio or someone else for that. Mm-hmm. Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, over the years, I've, I've taught yoga in different spaces. I've taught in juvenile justice centers. I've taught in public schools in New York. I've taught in California. And I started, you know, since we moved here in 2014, I definitely started 
teaching more adult classes. And a couple of years ago, got back in touch with a good friend of mine who I've known for 20 years. And he's the founder of Synergy Yoga. He's done phenomenal work with yoga. And also he does uh, Thai massage certifications as well. And so we've, we've been privy to each other's work, both in the yoga kind of spaces and outside of, you know, and, and within Capoeira and other projects. So we've, our relationship kind of, we reconnected, got back in touch and started to collaborate. And that collaboration has just really, I'd say, blossomed over the last like year and a half. Uh, Francisco uh, Morales Bermudas is his name. He um, came to Nairobi in December to do a Thai massage certification. Really amazing. We were able to bring some youth out from the slum to some of the um, young men that I work with teaching capoeira in the Kibera slum. Came and took the certification free of charge. And just really, like, this is, the, this is the work we want to be doing. This is our vision, is to create opportunities for people, keep offering wellness experiences and platforms. So we basically, when COVID came, because, of course, you know, there's not no in-person you know, classes happening and a lot of Synergy's work is training. So we do yoga teacher trainings, we do retreats, uh, as I mentioned, mm. massage certifications. So everything kind of had to get re-strategized and we, and we moved online. And so now we, are, we have a full online platform where we have teachers from Peru, U.S. and Kenya teaching on the platform about 14 classes a week. And we have a Sunday Sangha, which is a free community gathering. It's one of my favorite uh, events that we do. And different presenters each Sunday. It's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And there have been people there. There's, uh, Tumu is the kind of cultural queen of Hawaii. She's one of the elders there who holds the language and the hula and is really a holder of, of the culture in Hawaii. She's been on. My dad, who's a diversity consultant for the last you know 50 years, civil rights movement and an author came on. We had a Acharya was on last Sunday. He's a monk, Buddhist monk, and talked about the concepts of metta and karuna, um, you know, like selfless care and love. So it's been a really diverse range of presenters. And then we've had a couple of presenters on yoga philosophy. And but what's great is we've been able to engage a lot of people of color, primarily people of color, on this platform, and which is important for both of us, myself and Francisco, in terms of uh, creating different spaces in which we can share and also, you know, creating spaces for healers who are, who are people of color as well and black folks. And it's been really beautiful. So that's like a weekly ritual that we have at Synergy that's really amazing. And then we've done a retreat. It's called Rising. And that was basically a two-day wellness retreat, actually three-day wellness retreat. Again, different presenters, a lot of young healers, when I say young, 30s, 40s. Um, and then we had a circle of elders as well. It was one of the kind of important workshops that we offered so different elders came together and we gave them some prompts and we were able to kind of facilitate a conversation kind of creating a space similar to the function that elders have always played in in different societies of giving counsel and and sharing information so that happened and we have another we have another rising festival happening end of september so so that's been an ongoing piece and then we're kind of planning out for our in-person retreats and trainings over the course of the next six months. So that's starting to happen in October. Okay. So you'll you'll start with with new retreats in October or you'll start planning in October? We have a retreat we're planning now. Yeah, another it's like I'd say the next eight months are planned out for events. But we have a, a retreat in October in Lamu, Kenya. Lamu is the first Swahili um, settlement on the coast uh-huh. of Africa. 
It's, a, it's uh-huh. one of the most beautiful places I've been. There are no, no cars. It's island. Uh, Lamu is an island. And there are no cars in Lamu, and it's uh, and, and people use these Dao boats, these beautiful old Dao boats. The architecture and design in Lamu is phenomenal. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So we'll be doing. I'll be doing a retreat with a synergy collaborator who's a musician and a yogi by the name of John Nine. She's a good friend, and so we're doing a retreat together. Francisco has. Then we're planning one for Jamaica as well with her end of uh, end of December. And yeah, and so Francisco had a Peru retreat set up for November. That's since that's been pushed recently to March. So we definitely have had to, you know, shift things around and of course go with kind of what the the local laws are around travel and what policies are and also where people are with their finances in terms of Right. Right, of course. Of course. So just to go back to Mm. beyond just the wonderful events you're you're having and listeners, you'll I'll have very rich show notes for this. We're going to talk about the Sunday Sangha, the Rising Festival. So I'll get all that information and you'll have that. So you know when you can meet Salim and all of his collaborators. But I wanted to understand before COVID, how yoga, like the role that yoga plays in in Nairobi. Because so in Ghana, we have, I guess, a small but growing yoga community. And I think Africans are... I think we have a yoga in our minds and in our bodies. Like we do it automatically. I think most humans do some yoga automatically. But in terms of organizing and attracting and and marketing the studio and running the business, how was that from the brick and mortar perspective prior to this spring, last spring? So I would say Nairobi has the advantage or the fortune from a yoga teacher standpoint of having had a fairly large nonprofit called Africa Yoga Project based in Nairobi. And so the work that they've done is to train, you know, Nairobians, train Kenyans through yoga teacher trainings. So to give them a certification, to create employment opportunities for them. And there are a bunch of other programs they run. So Africa Yoga Project's based in Nairobi. Nairobi is the hub of East Africa. So for example, the UN uh, headquarters is based in, in Africa is based in Nairobi. Uh, in most U.S. and European nonprofits who are doing work in East Africa, might be working in Somalia or South Sudan, are based in Nairobi. So all that's to say that there's, there's a large international community in Nairobi, specifically from the U.S. and Europe, and the Middle East as well. Middle East is very close. And so, you know, with, of course, these expats comes a kind of need for, for sure people like yoga. So in some ways, Nairobi's was, has always been well positioned to receive yoga. Now, I came to Nairobi for the first time in 2008, and I was one of a few, maybe five yoga teachers in the city, or very few. Also, yoga culture wasn't really, you know, Africa Yoga Project wasn't here. There was, you know, the city wasn't as developed as it is now. Um, and I think yoga was a bit in, in, like I'd say that, you know, in most Kenyans' mind was still uncertain or taboo against kind of religious beliefs, which I know you've encountered in Ghana. Um, mm-hmm. There was, and I, I can see that in my own family. Like my, my mother-in-law, for example, was like, she wasn't into it. And now she's like, she is, and she like juices every morning. And a lot of the things that we were bringing back then in 2008, in terms of health and approaches to wellness and health and taking care of yourself are things that she's implementing now. And I think that's reflective of the experience of a lot of Kenyans who've had some level of exposure to someone around them who practiced. If you haven't, then it's still going to be, you know, then it, you might be still working off of 
kind of myth or what you, you know, what your perception of the practice is or the idea, the idea that it might conflict with religion, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yoga's really shifted. So I'd say it's very active in Nairobi in general. We probably have at this point, I would guess about six or seven dedicated, you probably have a good seven dedicated yoga studios. And I don't think there was one when I first came. Okay. Yeah. So within a decade, the the industry and the 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 environment has definitely welcomed and opened its arms around it. It is. The Lamu Yoga Festival um, has been huge. I teach at, at that festival every year for the last four years. They attract almost 400 people. Um, okay. To Lamu. Lamu is a very small place, but it's it's a great boost for the local economy there. And um, and that's a, that's a great event on the coast. That's been huge. And there have also been yoga teacher trainings now that have happened in Kenya over the last uh, probably three years. Well, okay. the project has been doing it, but outside of, they, they specifically train Kenyans. That's their home mission. So they're not, that's not like necessarily open for everyone. And now there've been teacher trainings that people are coming internationally to Kenya, usually held on the coast because it's much it. warmer than Nairobi and, you know, and you're on the coast. Like, who's not going right. to live on the coast? Right. <laughs> everyone loves a beach. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Mm. So, Tell us more about, so you told us kind of how you're pivoting and moving into just some, some of the virtual activities and then also with the, the festivals and events. I want to take another step back and talk a little bit more about um, working in Kibera. Sure. So tell us, for, for our listeners who don't know about Kibera, can you give us some context about that area and how you were able to, to get in and, and be effective with your program? Sure. So Kibera is considered the largest slum in Africa. Um, I don't know if that's that's true, but it's certainly one of them. It's one of one, one of maybe two. Um, so it's a, it's a huge population. Some estimates say around a million people live in Kibera, but it's hard to get an accurate census, I think. Um, but my people on the ground there who, who are from there and, you know, point to about a million people. So I think it's around that number. Um, and it's a, you know, so-called slum community. So economically, financially impoverished community and um and yet like a lot of communities very vibrant in a lot of ways if you go because i teach in Kibera a couple times a week and if you go there go there at night like you know i mean where it's kind of like you know i'm here in this in the uptown part of nairobi basically and it's like you know you're in your gated community and or at least in my case a gated compound you know but in Kibera, there's like there's much more street life you know and there's like music and there are women grilling fish out on the roadside at nine and there's activity, you know, and there's interaction, you know? So that's one of the things I love about Kibera in general is that like, you know, people are more, there's more of a communal feeling to the, the culture there. It's not like you have to leave your, you know, compound to engage with people, you know? So it's a, it's a pretty amazing place. A lot of, a lot of creatives have come out of Kibera in Kenya, a lot of artists, a lot of musicians. So that's also, I think the case in a lot of places as well, that kind of the struggle breeds it, resourcefulness, right? And creativity in a lot of ways. And so I was connected with the people that I, I work with in Kibera through a friend in the Capoeira community. He's from Chicago. And he was out here doing some nonprofit work, working with a youth arts organization called Kibera Social Arts. Kibera Social Arts's flagship program is called Slum Dance Africa. And the founder, Victor Onyango, is a dancer. He's a break dancer who started Slum Dance Africa following the 2007 post-election violence. Mm, I remember that. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they're an amazing resource for youth in Kibera to, you know, to have space, have a safe space. To, they do more than dance, not just dance, but, um, but that's the primary focus of there. They've done different programs. Um, we're now working on doing some, some programs with, with girls, with teen girls, kind of support, support group for them. Um, but anyway, so this friend of mine from Chicago connected me with Victor, who's from Kibera and started Slum Dance Africa. And he's like, you have to come train Capoeira with this guy. So they did. They started coming to my house where I was teaching class at the time. And after a while that, they were like, just come to Kibera. And I was like, all right. I started going to Kibera and just teaching there, just volunteering. After about maybe a little less than a year of volunteering, I was able to secure a grant through a small family foundation in the U.S. And then we were able to kind of run some different kinds of programs. So I was able to start to give more professional development to Slum Dance Africa. And also we started a kind of teach the, the, the teacher model or program where they were, I'd say three or four of my older students were starting to go into public schools and in Kibera, in the Kibera area, and, and teach. So I, I would train them, and they would go kind of teach directly. And, and the idea was to also be training them up, giving them professional development in teaching artistry, which is something I have a background in, in, in nonprofit mm-hmm. management. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've kind of been running the program like that, like basically free classes for kids in the community, professional development for Slum Dance Africa, and, the teach, and then having some of the teachers start, start to teach in, in local schools as well. Okay. Interesting. Sounds like fun. <laughs> it is. Sounds like your, your, all of your work sounds like fun. <laughs> That's the idea, right? Yeah. If only we could all approach all of our, I mean, my work is primarily fun, but yes, if we could all do that, we'd all be a lot more sunny. Yeah. Um, so this is a great, um, again, another great segue into my, my next uh, segment, which is my mindset hack. So this is when I ask you, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of, one that you practice. Okay, that's good. So just a mindset that helps keep me centered or that I, that I carry through my worldview, basically. Yes. You know, something that's been coming up recently and with colleagues in conversation has been, and I think this is really important, to start to get out of the struggle mentality. Yeah, mm-hmm. really that's a good one. Identifying, identifying it within yourself. You know, I have to struggle, or you know, even grinding. Some of some of these terms are it's creating these constant mental struggles for us. Of course, that's not to say that there's not hardship in the world. You know, but you know, from a yogic perspective, for example, it's not a question of like what's kind of what you encounter in the world. It's a question of how you respond to it, right? Yes. So, so I think that's been really important: is, is transitioning out of like struggle mentality and really, you know. Owning, owning abundance, acknowledging what's already there. You know, again, we were talking about this, the, in what I would describe as the kind of entrapment of capitalism, where you're always reaching for something else, never satisfied. You always need the next thing, or you need more money, or you need a raise, or you need that other position. So, it's, so you're constantly disconnected from where you are. You're constantly in the future, yeah. which, is never, which is never where you are. You're never in the future. So, sure. So, and of course, there's a balance between, and that, that doesn't say don't strive or don't have ambition. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that this, this mindset, which can be very toxic of like, you know, accumulating, always needing more, you know, that's one of the things I love about being here is that, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have so much less and it's like, they're not, they're not, you know, they have concerns, they have needs. Some folks, you know, have real struggles, 
but they're not creating extra struggles around it. You know, like they're, they're keeping a mindset that's like, okay, you know, well, it's going to be, it's fine. It's going to be okay. You know, okay. Yeah. Hardships and I'll, you know, we'll figure out how to deal with them, but I'm not going to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> you know, right. you know, if I don't have money right now, I'll find someone in my community who does, you know, people lend money more easily here. It's more fluid, you know, they're less concerned. And it's like, if you have, you give a little bit and then someone will give it back, give it back. to Yeah. You. And there's a bit more trust with that. You know, I've lent money to a friend of mine now in, in Kibera and it's fine. And I know he's, I've done it before. He pays me back right when he says there's never, it's not an issue. And if he didn't and I didn't need it, then I wouldn't worry anyway. So it's a bit of a tangent, but I think this mentality, so, so kind of the struggle mentality, like, you know, really shedding that um, mm-hmm. has been important. And uh, yeah, I'll stick with that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's a great one. That's a really great one. I, I, I re- it really resonates. And I, I think not only in the context of like Africa, and I, I love the, the analogy you made with, you know, if I can give someone something, and the idea that if I give it to them and they don't pay it, I'm not going to stress over it. Like there's just no struggle. Like it's not, it's not, it's very, everything is easy. Yeah. Ultimately it's That's as easy as we make it. it. That's a good, yeah. And we had, yeah. we had someone, yeah, we literally had, so John nine, who I mentioned to you, who's a colleague in the yoga work, did a workshop for us called life is easy. Mm-hmm. And kind of went through the, the cultivating this mindset of things are going to be easy. You know, and yeah. you to see the ease in life instead of the struggle. It's kind of like yeah. we experience what we hone, what we focus on, right? Exactly. Focus on the struggle or, you know, even when it comes down to, and this is work I'm still doing, like, you know, my people, my people, my people. It's like, okay, but that also keeps us in, you know, struggle mentality, like the struggling that struggle that we've been through historically. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been a struggle, of course, but when do we evolve out of that mindset? Because that all mm-hmm. puts you, it, it, it's like giving your power away, you know? Uh, right. That's it. That's yeah. exactly it. Exactly. Yeah. So let's be empowered. I love it. I love it. So, Salim, we're we're getting to the end of our conversation. This has been so enlightening. I, I always love my conversations with you, but this is yeah. into catching up on, on, so on Nairobi Live. I hope I can make it there. That's one of the countries that was on my list for this year, but yeah. 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 it's not anymore. Kenya's kind of a sleeper, like a lot, in, in the sense that like people come here typically for safari oftentimes, you know, like they're here for kind of the yeah. environment, like a lot of the tourism. But there's, you know, there's so much, you know, I think a lot of people love the climate in Nairobi, you know, which is not an obvious thing that you think about. But I say people, particularly people in the West, because it's very moderate. It's very moderate. We're high altitude in Nairobi. We're yeah. not on the coast. So right. it would be more like a warm Bay Area, maybe in the in the West yeah. is how yeah. the yeah. I make. But it's subtropical. So like the fauna and everything, it's still you know that you're you understand you're in the tropics and the animals. Mm-hmm. But it's really, you know, and the people are so pleasant. And then it's such a diverse country, even in terms of the kind of spaces you can go to from safari in the in the mountains. You can go from mountains to the coast, you know, to right. A desert is in Kenya, you know, all sorts of different spaces. It's really beautiful, beautiful country. Right. And I guess what is also one can appreciate is that the infrastructure is fairly, fairly well put together. Difference. Oh, it's good. I mean, I have better Wi-Fi often than like my 
colleagues in the U.S. It's like their Wi-Fi that's cutting out when we're meeting. When we're meeting. Wow. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. So yeah. small details, but again, like I said, UN headquarters is in Nairobi, and with all the humanitarian and development NGOs that are based here, like it's sure there's a reason that it should be developed or that it is developed anyway. Yeah. So it's definitely a, definitely on my list. Sure. So come visit for before too long. You'll see me there. Sure. <laughs> well, let me, let me take a step and let me, let me actually just kind of get a little bit of on a, a different kind of probe. Um, I always like to find out what, what inspires you in a content space. So you're a music person. So what are you listening to these days? <laughs> I have like all these Spotify playlists. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay. Let's say in terms of contemporary artists, like, and it's funny because sometimes like my kids in a lot of ways inform what I listen to. Cause in the sense that I might want to school them on old school artists, old school sure. artists, if it's Bill Withers or Stevie Wonder or Nina Simone. So there's that or Fela Kuti. They can, you know, my son can recite multiple Fela songs. So I'm always... Good job, Dad. Thumbs up, right? Good job, Dad. Exactly. I'm doing my work. Yeah. Um, contemporary artists, I like Tank and the Bengas is up there for me. I love them. Okay, but yeah. I love them too. Yeah. I know. Right. Amazing. I really want to see her live, them live. Yeah. Tierra Wack in the hip-hop space, I like a lot. Okay. Um, other con- um, Gregory Porter in in kind of the jazz mm-hmm. genre. Yeah. He's, he's a, you're in Brooklyn, Florence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I don't know if he's in Brooklyn now, but I know he's lived there for years. Who else? My list. Yeah, I mean, so it fluctuates between. I still listen to a lot of old school, and if I go through hip hop, it'll be you know a lot of our generation, native tongues, and you know into more contemporary black star. You know, if it's Soul music, it, it will be a lot a lot more classics in that genre. Blues, sure. when I started, I was listening to a lot of blues. <laughs> I was listening to a lot of Muddy Waters and okay. Williamson and, yeah, like classic blues artists. Somehow it was like hitting the right chord for me. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I feel like we have to somehow figure out how to preserve the blues because it's mm. it's not transcending. You're right. Yeah, that that one is not transcending. Like jazz seems like it will always transcend with the, yeah. with the you know. But yeah, the blues is a. I mean, part of it might be that it's struggle music. It so if you really want to evolve that, place, that level, but I love that. I love, I'm on the note of struggle. I love like using art and creativity to express the struggle. I mean, that to me is a very sure. you know, like yeah. That's the way to do it. It's not exactly like, leave it there. Yeah, I mean, cry. Yeah. You're going to cry. You're playing blues, you're yeah. crying, you know? So yeah. you're beautiful to that, you know, being able to just yeah. cry out your music. You know, to me, some of the yeah. best artists, just speaking on music, are artists who, you know, kind of have that, you know, have that vulnerability and openness where they could just mm-hmm. be crying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. making music. So, sure, sure, sure. Wow, you gave us some gems here. So again, rich show notes this week. Make sure you take a look. A lot of resources. So, as I said, we're, we're, I know it's evening time there. You probably have some things to move on to over here. I got to get my morning started. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> right. so what are, what are some last words for now? What would you like to, to share with our audience as, as a parting gift? Yeah, I think um, I would say like at this point in time, in the midst of COVID, one of the things, there, there are multiple things that I'm, again, with staying on this mantra of, releasing the struggle 
that I'm finding are very beautiful and that I'm finding are kind of medicine for me personally and for humanity, you know? And I was talking to someone about this yesterday and saying how, yeah, I, I personally think that in a lot of ways, this COVID is like the medicine that humanity needs and medicine doesn't always taste good. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a bit profound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that people are, you know, having to be a bit more quiet, it's kind of a hibernation period the way I see it. Everyone's kind of going inside and a lot of people are like fi- figuring out what's really important to them in life right now. And a lot of people mm-hmm. are going through that process because we have mm-hmm. one reason being that we have a bit more space and time to do it. You know, you know mm-hmm. it's like, what else are we going to do if we have to be home? You know, let's think. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. of, you know, how we move through the world, what our impact is, you know, what our, you know, as both as individuals and as humans. So I think in some ways this is, it is the medicine um, that, that we need. And I think also it's really beautiful. You know, we maybe wouldn't be having this conversation if COVID hadn't come. You know, there are a lot of conversations that we're having now if it didn't come as well. That's, that's kind of another byproduct. Public conversations and smaller spaces where we're coming together in communities. Like I said, our Sunday Sangha. And I think a lot of people are connecting with different communities online that they probably wouldn't be connected with otherwise, you know? Right. So I think that's, you know, a lot of these things are, are things to kind of think about and look at, like, what are, what are the positive things? What are the benef- uh, some of the beneficial things that could or are coming out of this time, this period that we're in? Nice. Nice. I like that. Very, very well said. Last thought. Before, before we go, Salim, I wanted to get the location. Do you have your Sunday Sanghas in a library on your Synergy website or on Yeah, they're all free. They're all free. Um, So it's uh, synergy.yoga, not So synergy.yoga. The Sunday Sangha is listed under online classes. So you'll just scroll Sunday classes and then just click on the little green video and you'll be let in right to the, um, to the Sangha. And then as for other classes, we charge 25 bucks for a week of classes and 85 for a month. And then, there, and then there's a, uh, a host of different things that are happening. We're doing a online Thai massage certification right now. And there are a bunch of other programs, um, special programs that we have calendared in for the next several months. Okay. Wonderful. 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 Well, Global Citizens, we've brought you another gem. I want to say thank you again to my guest, Salim Rollins. Thank you. And as always, you can find us at globalcitizenspod.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're just getting on Podbean if you're a Podbean person, but pretty much everywhere you find podcasts. So don't forget to subscribe, share, listen, comment, and make recommendations. That's how we have wonderful guests like our guests today. So until next time, bye for now.